It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Anthony DiMaria, born and raised in Las Vegas, who is director and producer, along with Johnny Bishop and executive producer Chad Lane, of Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, a feature-length documentary about his uncle, famed hairstylist Jay Sebring. The documentary explores the horrific murders of Sebring, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frakowski, and Stephen Parent, and it looks at the subsequent diminishing of Sebring's reputation by the media and the glorification of the killers by pop culture. The film is available on Amazon, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, Fandango Now, and Tubi TV. And you can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at J. Sebring Film. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure to be here with you. This was a passion project for you, wasn't it? It was, and uh, it was a lifelong journey for me because it started when my mother first told me that I wouldn't be able to see my uncle again. And uh, so I was roughly about four years old. And from the moment I was looking at a photo album, an 8x10 picture of him, and he's looking directly into the camera. And immediately I felt this need to, to know why I couldn't see him again. And I wanted to know him and it was a feeling that kind of pulled me in like a vortex. And it never left me my whole life. And, and when my mother, when I asked more about him, I saw sadness in my mother's eyes that I, I felt that I didn't ever want to cause that type of pain to her. I didn't know why or how it happened, but I knew just by mentioning his name, it had, I had done that. So I felt compelled to kind of, that was the beginning of the journey, my own personal journey, to know everything about Jay as I possibly could. Your folks still live and work in Las Vegas. That's correct, yes. Uh, as you had said, I'm born and raised in Vegas, and my sisters were born and raised here. And uh, my family has a shop here where they where we cut hair. <laughs> and and they, we all use the Sebring method with regard to cutting men's hair. So, And they, they cut quite a few Las Vegas personalities here, Paul Anka and Goldie Hawn and it actually cut the Clintons here as well. So, And interestingly enough, the Sebring Method, and it's so funny because the Sebring Method was so popular and such a part of the culture at the time when these murders took place. And your documentary, in addition to exploring, and we purposely didn't mention the names of the murders, and I'm just going to say the Manson family, but the influence of your uncle on hairstyling on an international level even was great. And in a way, I think your documentary is not only about exploring what happened, but also to, I don't want to say defend the reputation of your uncle, but to, in essence, reintroduce your uncle to an audience that, of course, is several generations away from that murder. I appreciate you saying that, because it really, uh, in, the, in the very beginning, uh, it always struck me that no one really knew who Jay was. And knowing firsthand from my family and our photos and Jay's personal collections and, and things, I, I was struck that no one really knew about him. And early on in the process, when I, realized, when I, when I really knew I was going to want to tell Jay's story, it, it was important for me to know what is the point of the story. And essentially, it was 
to restore the face to a culturally and historically relevant person whose legacy was stolen from him after he was killed. When you decided to make this documentary, what were some of the challenges you faced? Was it a matter of getting people to come on camera or at least talk off camera and be recorded about the situation? Or was it more getting documents from official sources or was it a combination of all of it? It's a great question because it, this film was independently produced. So there was no studio backing. It wasn't produced from, say, uh, you know, PBS or CNN or any of So I didn't have that luxury. But one of the benefits that I had was the wealth of material that Jay had saved himself, my grandparents and my parents. And that was really the blueprint of everything. The telegrams from Steve McQueen, from Quincy Jones, from Sharon Tate and their family. And so I had a wealth of, of materials to draw upon. And, and that's how I learned that, you know, about Stuart Whitman or different people and Vidal Sassoon that, that knew Jay so well. But the challenges, first and foremost, was the funding. And that came about from some private investors and mostly family friends, Chad Lane, uh, also a Las Vegan, and Voss Beretta. And that was really what, we, what helped finalize in the, final, in, the, in the post-production that we needed with sound and everything. Contacting people, it was interesting. I would have basically two experiences. People who would hear Jay's name, like Quincy Jones, Dennis Hopper, Nancy Sinatra, and right away they were like, I'm, I'm doing the interview. And some of these people, like Dominic Dunn and Dennis Hopper, were actually battling terminal disease when they did the interview. And then there was others that absolutely never even responded. And I'm not going to name some of them, but some of their agents were asking what the budget of the film was, implying payment. And everyone, with the exception of our forensic specialists and, and authorities, they didn't really, they didn't ask for pay. And they did it for Jay. And, and definitely tracking down the forensic uh, from the coroner's office, that, that a lot of that was very challenging. And then, of course, the travel. Uh, we went to New York several, three, four times, Detroit three times. We were all over the, the, the country. And uh, I think, is, is it, you can see in the film, I mean, it, we were filming for a period of 12 years. So we were kind of, you know, we bought a camera that after a while we just burned it out. So we were borrowing and, and doing all kinds of things with, with the technical aspects of it. But I was very fortunate to be connected with some great producers and Johnny Bishop, the producer, editor, cinematographer, and also the composer, Jeff Beale. But they were committed to this, and I'm so grateful to them for being so. It was a long incoming documentary, and you obviously had to sustain your, well, you, you, of course, didn't have to sustain your interest. You had the passion for it. But working with other people as a co-producer, etc., you had to keep their spirits up because this was taking a while to put together. For a number of reasons, I would assume, in addition to lack of budget, there were other things that had to be done, and you were still interviewing people and getting sources. What was the biggest challenge of even putting it all together at, at that point when you finally said, okay, now we're ready to compile it, edit it, get it ready? What was the biggest challenge? Well, to your point, I mean, the commitment, when we're doing something independently, so there was no, uh, no one was being paid, essentially. You know, that, that's part of the, the difficulty in, in not having a fixed budget and a studio backing. But the extraordinary honor that I had was the people that were committed were extraordinary, and, and they were also equally talented to match their commitment. So that, all that said, there was some challenges that, that I didn't realize is that clearances you know, uh, I, I think 
I didn't realize. For instance, there is that one segment where it's my family on Christmas Eve, about five years after the murders, and my grandmother gets upset. And in the background is John Denver singing. And we had to pull that out because we would have had to pay royalties to it. Does that make sense? And yes, so, that's an interesting. I don't think people realize what clearances is that you have to you have to clear songs and some kinds of music in order to be able to broadcast or show a film in either on television, cable TV, theatrical release, etc. You have to have those kinds of clearances. So it's probably less expensive to edit out the music through probably some sort of sound editing as opposed to trying to pay for a clearance on the song. Absolutely. Which obviously Absolutely. The, the, song wasn't, the song wasn't important to the scene, and yet it would have cost more than the scene itself. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Completely. I thought about this because I, I watched the documentary and I was fascinated by a lot of it because, again, you, you had some interesting people talking about your uncle who people don't associate necessarily with J.C. Bring in, of course, as you and I talked about prior to this show, you could be the most famous person in the world and time goes by and at some point, all of a sudden, the next generation or three generations down, they go, well, who is that person? So... You see that with major celebrities. I knew who Jay Sebring was because I grew up in that era and the impact that he had. And yet, in today's world, it's a different situation. So your documentary kind of brings that into play, and rightly so. This is a long about way to my question, which is this, the uncomfortable question. When you decided to ask everybody about your uncle, did you even contemplate about talking to any of the members of the Manson family and getting them on film? Absolutely. So you bring up a couple of really interesting points. And, and one of the things that is so that I learned in the discovery of all of this is that even though people might not have heard of Jay Sebring and his work, they know it firsthand today through whether it be the Spartacus cut with Kirk Douglas, whether it be the Jim Morrison cut or the Steve McQueen cuts, when you say cut, you're not meaning as in a film cut, you're meaning as in a haircut. Exactly. So when, when people refer to Steve McQueen as the king of cool, they're not talking pre-Sebring. They're talking about post-Sebring. They're not talking about the blob. They're talking about bullet. And, and, and that Jim Morrison cut, that revolutionized men's haircutting in that it was, go, it was taking a great shape instead of it just being long and blunt, but sculpted to frame Jim Morrison's face in the best possible way. So if people, if, if someone's asked about those images, even young kids today will, will recognize the Jim Morrison cut, which is a very, it, 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 it was very gratifying to learn this throughout my process. Now, with regard to the second point you made, I knew that I had to know the complete truth. And one of the things that I had to know, because it was a chapter in Jay's life, is what did Jay do in the last moments of his life? And I had no definitive proof of, of or evidence of what he did. There was only kind of a, kind of a, uh, a trite uh, mention in the Helter Skelter book that Jay uh, protested Sharon being treated roughly. Well, he did a heck of a lot more than that. And I learned this when the, I spoke with the district attorney's office and was able to scour through, I can't even say how many pages of testimony. And then I learned, which is in the documentary, first-hand accounts from Susan Atkins and Charles Watson, the only people on the planet who would know, with the exception of the other, uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, the other killer. So when I found that, 
I knew that this was the most credible piece of evidence, along with the forensic evidence, that we would know what did Jay do in the last moments of his life, because for some reason it was swept under the carpet. And before I encountered or I discovered the evidence, I wanted to ask Watson. I did talk. I, I sent a request to Manson and to Krenwinkel, because Susan Atkins was dead by this time. And I had two response, two letters from Watson, nothing from Krenwinkel. And Manson, um, there was some talk. It got complicated because you have to pay an account, and it just it didn't work out, and then he died. And he's known for playing up, you know, gibberish and, and playing games with things. But Watson declined the first time, a couple of years before his parole hearing. And then months before the parole hearing, he agreed to speak with me. Well, by this time, I had the evidence. And I thought it was pretty transparent. It was almost like a tactic move to reach out to a victim's family member several weeks before his next parole hearing. So that, you know, I, 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 I focused on the parole hearing, and I already had the evidence. Was it throughout the process, and as you mentioned, it goes through several years when you were working on the documentary, were you able to maintain some objectivity, or was it, entirely emotional for you going through and putting it together and interviewing people and looking at records and as you mentioned about the DA's office reading transcripts etc that's a, it's a great question because i think any form of i mean the mere act of taking a picture it's no longer objective because it's framed so it's only capturing a certain aspect of what the image is and you know certainly just by doing a film it's not going to be completely objective. And, and, and certainly I was aware that as a blood relative, that just before anyone even saw the film, they would think, uh-oh, this is going to be a tribute or it's going to be, you know, uh, a deification of the person or it's going to be very biased. And I knew that Jay's story stood on its own. So, uh, and my producer and I, you know, uh, Johnny Bishop, we, we really knew what the story was and we never veered from it. And so anytime we would veer from something that would take away from Jay's actual story or anything that maybe if I, if, if I was veering closer to a personal opinion or a desire, then we would really go back to the story. And Jay's story has so much depth and integrity that I was just comfortable, you know, we, as the documentary shows. I mean, you know, Jay enjoyed life and in many ways of the 60s and that some people might have eliminated some of that, but I, I, I felt that that was intrinsic to Jay's story, because not only did he, was he influenced by what was happening in the 60s, but he in turn was going on to define the 60s in his own way, whether it be style, fashion, and, and also literally producing uh, in terms of whether it be the influence he had with Bruce Lee's career and launching him to his film career, or putting people together to do films. So... I knew that if I deified or if I candy-coated Jay's story in any way, it would betray the value and the truth of Jay's story. Well, let's take a break. My guest, Anthony DiMaria, born and raised in Las Vegas, who is director and producer, along with Johnny Bishop and executive producer Chad Lane, of Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, a feature-length documentary about his uncle, famed hairstylist Jay Sebring. The film is available on Amazon, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, Fandango Now, Tubi TV. And you can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Film. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas 
with Ira in just a moment. Are you struggling with housing issues, mounting bills, or other legal issues? Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada offers free legal assistance in many areas, including free classes and ask a lawyer consultations. Go to our website for more information, including how to apply for services. Visit www.lacsn.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Anthony DiMaria, born and raised in Las Vegas, who is director and producer, along with Johnny Bishop and executive producer Chad Lane, of Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, a feature-length documentary about his uncle, famed hairstylist Jay Sebring. The film is available on Amazon, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Voodoo, Fandango Now, and Tubi TV. And you can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Jay Sebring Film. Anthony, when you were working on the film and you finally reached a point where you were happy with where it was and you finally said, this is it, now we've got to get it totally put together and get it out there, what was that moment? In other words, did you have one piece of evidence or one clip in this case, not a hair clip, but a clip of film that you came across that you said, this will now finalize my documentary. Well, it's a very difficult part of a process when to know when the film is finished. And even today, I think, ooh, I could have done this, or I'd like to emphasize this, or, or you know, just I would have loved to have had this chapter included in the film. But we went through a series of various cuts, rough cuts, and then even like uh, close to polished final cuts. But uh, I think through the process, knowing, I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was good to have partners, you know, such as like Chad Lane and, and Johnny Bishop. And where we were like, yeah, I think we're, I trusted them. And, and I also knew the story so well that I don't know that it was a seminal moment, but it was definitely a journey that I felt very confident and happy with what was happening with, the, with regard to quality and detail. One of the interesting things is, is that the documentary is 91 minutes, but we have an 150 hours of footage. And even now we have a couple of people who are interested in knowing more, a more extensive part of it. And there's so much more that can be done. And that's, that's one of, the, that's one of the, the battles, you know, like people say you have to, what is it, kill your babies or something like that, which I don't like to say that, but it's it's a term that people use in terms of what you can keep in the film and what you can't. And that was part of one of the wonderful challenges to have because we had so much material and yet there is so much more that is so compelling and relevant, not just to Jay's story, but to our culture and, and, and whether it be journalism or the 60s or various facets of media even today. Do you think that down the road with all that extra material, now that we're in a digital age, you could obviously have that available in some sort of repository, whether it's a website or, for example, a library where people could access it and do further research on your uncle and all the other people that were involved in this? I think that's a great idea because, you know, the more information, the more clarity we have, the better it is. It just, again, from a cultural and historical context. And certainly with regard to the victims, because there's so much distortion that had been, whether it be perpetrated 
or sculpted or just passed along with regards to not just the killings and what happened in these killings, but also certainly with the people who committed these, these killings. And, it, and again, of course, my focus would be on the victims. And uh, to have something that you're referencing, whether it be a, a podcast, a book, or some sort of library platform, would be a, a phenomenal contribution. Because I, I, I feel, well, it's not that I feel, these murders have been experienced by and large as a form of entertainment and also as a morality tale and several morality tales. So I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, this film is one of the first looks, certainly at Jay, but that chapter of these murders of his life with honest, candid commentary on what was actually happening. And so when I mention a, a morality tale, the first morality tale was what were these Hollywood types doing that would make them targets to be killed? And even law enforcement was leaning towards that. So there was all this speculation. And essentially what was happening is are the victims were being blamed for their own demise. So, and they were being attacked while they were dead. And then when they found the Manson people, then the second morality tale was this was a hippie cult. So when they're looked at as a hippie cult, that means leaves room for all kinds of conspiracy theories and different ways to, again, exploit what was happening in those times. Because Joan Didion famously said that many believe the hippie movement ended abruptly on August 8, 1969, which was the night of the murders. And the morality tale in this case was don't let your kids be hippies or don't be a hippie because you'll be controlled and kill. But in fact, what the Manson, the so-called Manson family is, is a crime organization, a very pernicious violent crime organization. And when we see things for what they are, then we can understand more culturally and historically and learn from them. I mentioned several of the victims in the opening, and I know there's a few others. Would you mention them too? And then I want to ask you about your uncle. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that you did that. Um, and you, re you mentioned this because Gary Hinman was one of the first to be killed Several weeks before the, what is known as the Tate-LaBianca murders, Bernard Crow was shot by Manson. He did not die, but Manson believed that he killed him. And then a ranch hand, Donald Shea, some people refer to him as Shorty Shea because he was so large in stature, he was killed by Manson and some of the others, Watson and the other men. And that's the murders that, that we know of. There was other additional attempted murders and such, but their crimes extended from late 1967 all the way through to 1974, culminating in the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford by Lynette Fromm. As riveting as the documentary is, I want to focus in our last few minutes about your uncle and his career and his life, because I know you don't want him being defined strictly by this horrendous action, but he, he had quite the life. So give us, give us a little sense of who Jay Sebring was based on not only your family history, but what you discovered in putting together this documentary. Dead. And again, that's such a great point. And I was speaking with a producer from, I think it was 60 Minutes Australia. And she wanted to do an interview, and I wasn't really interested because it was going to be another piece on the murders. And, and I had mentioned to her that, you know, the victims were not peripheral. They were not incidental to this. And until a real extensive, in-depth look at the victims, people won't really learn anything about these murders or know much about them. And the thing about Jay, when, just before she hung up, she said, you know, Anthony, or I'm, I'm going to do a bad imitation accent, but she says, you know, Jay's 
life story really was quite a sad one, wasn't it? And I said to her, I said, you know, based on what has been reported up until now, I can kind of understand why you would say that. And I said, but if we look at the 35 years that led up to the last moments of Jay's life, his life story is quite an inspiring, glorious story, and that he embodied the American dream. He was passionate about his dreams. He landed in Los Angeles at 22 years old with a sleeping bag and dreams. And in the next 14 years, in his own way, he created an industry that did not exist, that today is a $20 billion industry globally. He defined the times. He left a mark on the world. He made a difference. And even in the last moments of his life, he... Take, uh, take your time, it's fine. He stood up to an evil. And he tried to protect himself and the people he loved. And I think that that is a great legacy in and of itself. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Um, and I, I've all, after, of so many years, the more I've learned uh, the distortion, with specifically to Jake, because for whatever reason, and I'm learning some things even now, that why people, some people would want to throw him under the bus. But I've often wondered, why don't we know what Jay did in the last moments of his life? Unarmed, against two people, three people, two of them with hunting knives, one with a bayonet and a gun, and try to stop it. To me, and I'm, I'm assuming many of us, that is one of the most important takeaways of those events on Cielo Drive. He believed in living life with passion and a zeal, you know, cultivating and fighting for your dreams and elevating not just the profession or an industry, but the world and, and for his friends like Bruce Lee and, and different friends that he helped extensively. And he would remind us, and this is one of the things I'm so grateful to my parents and grandparents, because when uh, throughout the years when, when you know, we would see some of these news reports or these movies or jokes or people with Manson T-shirts on and different things. My parents would, would reiterate, just as my grandparents did to them and to me and to my sisters, that Jay would not want us to suffer any more than what is natural and to go out and live life with the passion and the zeal that he did. And I'm grateful to that because these types of crimes have a way of... Uh, destroying people even further than what is natural, which is, I can understand that. But the courage and the strength and the grace that my grandparents and parents instilled, I'm just so grateful for. I know my sisters are as well. And of course, every so often in the news, something comes up that you have to relive it again. What I think you did with the documentary, and this is just from my point of view, is that you took the bull by the horns and you said, look, we can't control what happens in the larger media world or the cultural world where sometimes the criminals celebrated and the victims are mocked, but I'm going to make this documentary and it's going to be there. Maybe not everybody sees it, but it's there and they'll see the other side, the side that I believe is correct in terms of my uncle and these other people. Absolutely. And the distortion, it, it, one of the things that was uh, uh, a friend and, and Hollywood producer, he, uh, Larry Gordon, who's produced all kinds of Boogie Nights and Field of Dreams, and he saw the film and he said, you know, Jay's story is an amazing story told by significant people in the doc. He said, but equally important is the film sets the historical record straight. 
And what a, what an honor to hear that from such a you know a, a talented man. And I, I I think that now knowing that it's out there, it's not that we have any closure because there will never be closure until Jay and all his friends and all the victims get out of their graves, looking the way they did, and have the 50 years that were stolen from them. But there is a great sense of providence, of accomplishment, and some comfort to know that finally Jay's story is, is now being told with a detailed quality and the truth in which it actually happened. Not It was Jay Sebring, the man who lived, not a Jay Sebring portrayed after he was slaughtered. And I hope that, in, that each of the victims, in, 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 with regard to all these crimes, but any violent crime, be treated in a similar way and get their due respect. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Anthony Maria, born and raised in Las Vegas, who is director and producer, along with Johnny Bishop and executive producer Chad Lane, of Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, a feature-length documentary about his uncle, famed hairstylist Jay Sebring. The film is available on Amazon, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Voodoo, Fandango Now, and Tubi TV. And you can follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at J. Sebring Film. Anthony, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Ira. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed speaking with you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.